Okay, so we've been saying throughout the series, we've been talking about, well, I've been talking about how one of my favorite things of this season is the music that goes along with it. There really isn't any other season that has its own songs the way Christmas does, both religious and non-religious. Uh, there's just tons of beautiful songs to to make this season even more magical than it already is. Uh, but along with that, there's bad songs, and I've been making fun of some of those uh, songs that are, in my opinion, bad songs. And last week, I, I said something about how I was happy that I had not heard the Chipmunks Christmas song yet this year. And that is still true. I have not. <clears throat> but I said something about, you know, if you love that song, I would love to hear why. And someone wrote in, <laughs> uh, someone who doesn't attend TNL anymore but still listens to the, uh, the talks online, um, wrote me and said, you know, it's not a good song. We all know that. But I have so many memories of watching that show as a kid that when I hear it, it just makes me really happy. Uh, it instantly brings me back to those moments. Um, those moments of watching that show as a child, but then also hearing that song as a child on the radio. And, you know, that makes just so much sense. Like, it's the nostalgia, right? Like, of course... Most of these songs are only popular because we all have memories linked to them. And so now, when I hear that song, instead of just wondering, like, what on earth, how did this, <laughs> how was this allowed to happen? I'm going to think of her, and I'm going, to, I'm going to think of her enjoying it, and then I'm going to enjoy it. Um, so I have told you plenty of my favorites. Um, I would like to do something very not TNL and just ask what are some of your favorite Christmas songs, religious or not. Please just shout them at me. Come on, Silent Night, it's perfect. Mm, Little Drummer Boy, that's also a great one. Oh, Holy Night. I knew you were going to say something like that. The Night Santa Went Crazy. I've never heard that song. <laughs> I thought for sure, Doug, you were going to say Grandma Got Ran Over by a Reindeer. And I'm glad that no one said that because I think we can all agree, nostalgia or not, it's just objectively bad. Um, I saw Mama Kissing Santa Claus. It's a really cute song. Very confusing for a child. Uh, anyway, we've been talking about uh, some of the first, very first Christmas songs that we find in the Bible throughout this series. Uh, we started with Mary's Magnificat. Last week, we looked at Zechariah's Benedictus. Both of these are songs that uh, are sung by people after being visited by an angel after and both being told about miraculous births that were about to happen. And they sing songs in reaction to the fulfillment of what the angel has told them. Tonight we're going to be looking at the very first song sung on the very first Christmas, a song sung by the angels themselves, a song that we call the Gloria. Uh, we have a lot to talk about tonight, so I'm just going to jump right into the story. Um, we're, going to, we're looking at this angelic Christmas song at the beginning of Luke chapter 2. <clears throat> which goes a little something like this. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while uh, Quirinius, you remember Quirinius, was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went from the town of Nazareth to Galilee, in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room, no guest room available for them. 
And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will, be, that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and peace on earth to those on whom his favor rests. So the angel says all these incredible things. I bring you great news of great joy for all people. A savior has been born. He is the Lord. His arrival is a harbinger of peace on earth to those on whom his favor rests. We're so used to hearing this story and so used to hearing these things said about Jesus that we often completely miss that these are profound and dangerous declarations for the angels to be making in this story. What makes them so profound and dangerous. I mean, if you look across literature written, written in the first century, uh, what the angel says fits very well with quotes that we find all over the place. Quotes like these. He is called the Son of God, Lord, and Redeemer, and Savior of the world. Uh, he has wiped away our sins. His birth is good news for the whole world. Um, who being sent to us and our descendants as Savior has put an end to war and has set all things in order. He has brought peace to the whole world. Obviously, these things are all about Jesus, right? No. <clears throat> Sorry, I lied. Uh, these are all things written about Augustus Caesar, the Roman emperor at the time of Jesus' birth. Many of them written long before Jesus was born. So you see, after Julius Caesar whom we're all, we all remember Julius Caesar. After he was assassinated in 44 BC, the Roman Republic that was changing into an empire fell into chaos and civil war, um, a civil war that raged for almost 20 years until uh, a guy named Augustus Caesar comes along who was Julius's adopted son. Augustus didn't really get a handle on things and end the civil war for like 20 years almost. It was 27 BC. Uh, and he spent the next several years reestablishing order in the empire beyond Rome and expanding the empire by conquering and, and subjugating foreign kingdoms as clients of Rome. And they, those clients of Rome, in exchange for heavy taxes, enjoyed the order that Rome brought. And in doing so, Augustus ushered in what is known as the Pax Romana, uh, the peace of Rome, a period of peace unlike anything uh, people had known for decades, especially across basically the known world. And it was for these reasons that all these lofty titles uh, and grandiose praise were given to him. <clears throat> By the time Jesus was born, all of these things would have been just synonymous with Caesar. If you heard someone saying the savior of the whole world or the one who brought peace to the whole world or the one whose birth is good news for the whole world or even son of God, to, if you said that to anyone in the Roman Empire at this time, they would immediately know that you are talking about Augustus the emperor Caesar. So let's consider some of the things written about Jesus' birth from the book of Luke. It says he's the holy one to be born, and he will be called the son of God. He will save his people from their sins. Or what we just read tonight, I will bring you good news of great joy for all the people. A savior has been born to you. He is the Lord. Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth. Peace to those on whom his favor rests. 
So these well-established names and attributes given to Caesar are now applied to Jesus. It's not a coincidence. This isn't an accident uh, by Luke. This is a deliberate act of rebellion. The mighty Roman emperor, who is worshipped by much of, of the known world, is not the son of God, is not the savior, is not the one who brings true peace to the whole world. Instead, it's this poor Jewish peasant who, who is the rightful owner of all these titles. In direct opposition to the Roman savior, who supposedly already brought peace to the whole world, is this Jewish child whose birth means peace on earth. But the peace that these two people bring could not have been more different. At the time of Jesus' birth, Israel has been under a brutal Roman rule for about 60 years. Uh, they survived at least two major uprisings, um, one of which happened like right around Jesus was born. Uh, in both of them, the Romans and the Roman-installed Jewish king slaughtered tens of thousands of Jewish people, sometimes including women and children, and burned entire cities to the ground. Um, which is ironic because, again, this is all during this thing, this time period called the Pax Romana or the Peace of Rome. This was the peace that Rome prided itself on bringing to the entire world. But the peace that Roman rule brought was peace through domination and subjugation and oppression and control. After being conquered by Rome, uh, one Briton chief is quoted as saying in part, uh, where they make desolation, they call it peace. The peace of Rome was violence rebranded as peace. Caesar brought the Pax Romana through force and violence and subjugation and imposing his will. Christ brings peace to the world through humility and healing by waging war against sin and death, not other humans. Christ doesn't bring peace by enslaving us more. He battles the things that already have us enslaved. The infinitely powerful becomes a powerless infant. And in doing so, he brings real peace, a message of good news for all the people. The birth of Jesus was the beginning of the fulfillment of God's promise for peace. Now, we've talked about peace several times throughout the years, and normally when we think about peace, we think about the absence of conflict or cessation of turmoil or um, tension. We think of no more, no more fighting, no more war, right? But peace is so much more than that. Peace isn't merely the cessation of conflict. Peace is a state of well-being, of wholeness, of harmony in all of one's relationships. So in the Old Testament, peace, or what they, the Hebrews called shalom, was a God-given state of wholeness that was a return to original goodness. A person of peace was a person who was living out of who God created them to be. And Jesus' birth, <laughs> birth and life and death, life and death combined is left, uh, birth, life, death, and resurrection inaugurated a reign of peace seen through the reconciliation that he brings between God and humanity. And that restores us to that original goodness before sin, before disorder, before domination, before violence entered the world. All of this makes it possible for us to reconcile with one another, spreading peace. So this is what the birth of Jesus started. But 2,000 years later, our world is still not right, still not at peace. We're still broken. We're still waiting for the full uh, consummation of this ultimate peace. And these days, certainly after the past three years, <clears throat> our world, our culture, um, whether 
online or in the real world seems to be much more willing to be violent towards one another, emotionally and mentally and physically. So what does it mean to be people of peace in a world of violence? What does it mean to be people waiting on God to fully bring about the peace promised through Jesus? We really have two choices. Like Rome, we can try to take matters into our own hands and force a deformed and mangled peace through violence and domination in order to control people to do what we want them to do. Or we can join God to pursue a peace through reconciliation and restoration in order to free everyone to be who God created them to be. The writers of the New Testament, if you've spent any time reading it at all, you know, talk about peace all over the place. And one instance of that that I continually come back to is in Romans 12, where Paul writes this. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not repay anyone evil for evil, but be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's righteous justice. For it is written, it's mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, Paul's about to quote from Proverbs here. He says, if your enemy is hungry, feed them. If, you are thirst, if they are thirsty, give them something to drink. In doing this, you heap burning coals on their head. <laughs> that phrase, heap burning coals on their head, essentially means here that your surprising generosity will awaken their conscience. That's how Eugene Peterson, who uh, translated the message version of the Bible, translates it, and I think that's so perfect. If your enemy is hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. Your surprising generosity will awaken their conscience. And then Paul concludes by writing, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I think this, this is what it looks like to be people of peace waiting for peace. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Bless, don't curse. Laugh with those who laugh. Weep with those who weep. As best you can, live at peace with everyone. Um, Don't seek revenge. Don't take matters into your own hands, but wait for God. Wait for God to bring about the fullness of peace, the restoration, and the return to original goodness that he promised. Wait for peace. In the meantime, while you wait... Be people of peace. Be people of reconciliation. Love your enemies. Awaken the conscious of an unconscious and hostile world uh, through uh, your surprising acts of generosity. That's what Paul is saying here. What Rome and what many before and many since thought, what many of us still fall into thinking, is that violence could result in peace. But violence only ever begets violence. And God calls us to be different. God calls us to wait on him, to be ministers of reconciliation and to be people of peace waiting for peace. But I think this waiting for peace that the angels proclaim that night, waiting for the ultimate fulfillment of good news for all people can sound like a really passive thing. It doesn't sound like we're doing anything but just sitting around waiting for God to fix the world. Waiting on peace, being people of peace in a violent world, I think, is not a passive endeavor. It's just the opposite. And I think we see a picture of that in, the, in some characters that are really easy to overlook in the story that we read uh, in this angelic scene in the fields. 
So to close tonight, quickly, I want us to consider the shepherds in the story that we just read. In that story, the shepherds are out in the fields guarding their flocks, tending their flocks. Then an angel appears and tells them about Jesus, and then a whole gaggle of angels appear and sing the song that we looked at. And in response, they immediately go to find Joseph and Mary and Jesus, and they become the first witnesses to Jesus. And they spread what they saw and heard to, it sounds like, anyone that would listen. Now, here's what you need to know about shepherds. They were often very poor. They were often despised as being untrustworthy. They moved around a lot, which just sort of uh, came with the job. But people tended to not trust nomads. And they had a reputation for stealing. So this is a very interesting group of people to be the first witnesses to the infinitely powerful becoming a powerless infant. But beyond that, let's just consider the events from their point of view. Uh, They have this miraculous experience in their fields, hearing, hearing from angels. And then what do they do? They leave to go find Jesus. What's like the one thing, <laughs> the one thing that shepherds aren't supposed to do? Leave, leave their flocks unattended. It's their entire job to, to keep track of these animals. Like that's it. That's the whole job. Just up and leaving them leaves them vulnerable to predators or robbers. And yet the shepherds go. They risk their livelihood livelihood to be present with Joseph and Mary and Jesus. Now, you might be thinking, if, if they're already poor and already have a bad reputation, like, they're not really risking much. They don't have much to lose by doing this. But the opposite is true. They have everything to lose. They are risking everything in responding the way that they do. If anything bad happens to these flocks while they're away, they lose everything. Who's ever going to hire shepherds who apparently saw angels one night and just left, left their flock? No one. They're putting their entire livelihood on the line. They're putting what little shred of credibility they might have left on the line just to go see this newborn child. And they have nothing to offer, nothing to offer other than their presence. And allegedly one of them had a drum and thought, I will play this drum for this newborn child. But they gave their presence, and they, they presence as in P-R-E-S-E-N-C-E, not wrapped up presence. Anyway, That's all they had was them being there and they freely gave it. And then they make sure that everybody knows about it. (laughs) They, They could have just easily gone and saw Jesus and then come back and kept everything to themselves, but they willingly tell everyone about this incredible experience that they had, which includes abandoning the animals that they're responsible for. So these shepherds risk everything. And as a result, they get to be the first people to witness the beauty of the incarnation. It's not the king, it's not the priest, it's not the emperor, it's not the rich or the elite, it's these poor nobodies who put everything on the line just to show up and be present to this newborn baby Jesus. Beautiful things happen when we're willing to show up and be present for people, especially when it's risky. In doing so, we, like the shepherds, proclaim the good news of Jesus. Peace, shalom, wholeness, and harmony for all. Waiting on peace, being people of peace, means actively showing up for one another. So this Advent, with the remaining weeks that we have, and as we enter into a new year and the season of Epiphany, may we be willing to risk it all to be present as peoples of peace for everyone that God has put in our lives. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for this season 
to contemplate and remember uh, the promises that you have made to us, to contemplate how you handle power in contrast to how the world handles power. And God, a season to remember uh, who you've called us to be, a people of peace in a violent world. God, I pray that we would uh, be ready and willing to show up and be present for the people that you've placed in our lives to actively spread peace wherever we go. God, we love you. Amen.